I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara life. At Sakara, we believe that our daily habits and rituals have profound effects on our lives and that our thoughts and feelings play an integral role in our overall well-being. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Dawson Church to explore how we can shape and redirect those thoughts and ultimately remodel the brain for more resilience, creativity, and joy. Dawson founded the National Institute for Integrative Healthcare to study and implement evidence-based psychological and medical techniques to alleviate physical, mental, and emotional issues, including healing trauma. The Institute's largest program, the Veterans Stress Project, has offered free treatment to over 20,000 veterans with PTSD over the past decade. Dawson is an award-winning science writer and author of three best-selling books, The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and Bliss Brain. His groundbreaking research has been published in many prestigious scientific journals, and he shares how to apply these breakthroughs to health and athletic performance through EFTUniverse.com, one of the most visited alternative healing sites on the web. Please welcome Dr. Dawson Church. Well, hi, Dawson. We are just so honored to have you on the Sakara Life podcast today. Welcome. Danielle and Whitney, it's such a joy to be here. Well, we usually prep people who come on to our podcast with what the first question is going to be, but we did not. We're going to surprise you today because I know you're going to handle it so well and probably something you already think about often. But what is your mission here on earth? What are you here to do, give, teach? I've known this since I was a child and it's just to be love. And it's not to teach or to do so much, although I do do and I do teach, but it's just to be, you know, just that that ability to relax and let love flow through you. And, and that's where we're all meant to be. We're all meant to have lives of infinite love, infinite joy. And we have the brain circuits for it. We have the bodies for it. We have the civilization for it now. And so just relaxing into that being of allowing the love that is us, that is the universe, to pour through us is what we're all all here to be. And our main, I suppose, job, if you want to think of it that way, is to remove the impediments to that. We have thinking that stops us from allowing that to flow. We have habits, we have behaviors, we have family history, we have all kinds of limitations that we have built into the program. And our job is to find those and release them. But we're all it, we're all there already. And our job is just to let go of the impediments and then be that fully and consciously. Can you talk to us about that moment when you were a child, when you knew and how it brought you to today and what your work is today? Well, even though I knew that as a child, I was not happy. 
And my parents were missionaries. We traveled to a lot of different countries, mostly very poor countries, and a lot of turmoil in the family, in the church. And by the time I was 11 and 12, I was just so desperately unhappy. I did not want to be here. I thought about suicide almost every day. And I just hated living here. I kept on wanting just to get out of this place. I just didn't fit. And so I didn't begin in a very happy space. And then one day when I was about 15 years old, I was lying on my bed in my bedroom, and again, just wretchedly unhappy, just desperately unhappy, no one to talk to, no one to relate to. And suddenly I had this vision of the universe, and I just suddenly was like floating in space, saw all the stars, and I saw everything as love. And I realized the whole universe was love. And even though my daily experience was not that, I realized that there was a place that was greater than my daily experience. And I then began to, to at least have the idea that there was a possibility of that there. And it turns out that research now shows that most teenagers have something like that happen to them. Sometimes it happens when they're five or seven or nine or 12, but most people before they're 18 have some kind of experience like that. Again, it may not radically shift the direction of their lives, but at least they know there is a there there. And so I then joined a spiritual community. I learned the great perennial philosophy behind all the religions, and I made that my focus for a long time. I didn't get much happier, so I then got into psychology. I figured, okay, spirituality isn't moving the needle, and most of the people in the ashram are pretty dysfunctional, so maybe these psychologists have figured it out. Ha, ha, bloody ha. (laughs) (laughs) They they were possibly even more screwed up than the people in the ashram. So it wasn't psychology. Went into business, got a lot of entrepreneurs, started my own business, and eventually became, got into this world. But what I've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years is research and putting the lens of science focusing on what science shows us about all of these these phenomena and then how we can make ourselves happier, but not in terms of ideas, ideology, spirituality, or concepts, but what neuroscience shows us about that. And so that's really what I've been focused on is releasing trauma, releasing PTSD, and then also aspiring to what Abraham Maslow called self-transcendence beyond the top of the traditional Maslow pyramid of self-actualization. I've been doing research now for the last 20 or 30 years, and hard science. If you go to the U.S. government database of medicine, PubMed, you'll see scores of papers with my name on them there. I want to know what science tells us about happiness and about how we can get there quicker. So that's my main focus. Okay, so then that makes us have to ask, you know, can you start telling us about the science? What are you seeing in the science when it comes to happiness? Isn't that the human condition? We're always searching for happiness and we're all feeling that little bit of discomfort in where we are today and think that there's something else out there that's going to make us happy. Is that true? Is that the case? Yes, we have some inkling that there is a happy place, and we may have hit it occasionally. And so every single person in Sufism, they call that the glimpse, the glimpse of heaven, that you have a glimpse of heaven when you're standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon, looking across, and suddenly you're aware of something huge, vaster than yourself, or you're watching a beautiful sunset, or 
you're with a friend and having a moment of deep spiritual communion, or you're at a holy place, a sacred place, or you go to a Native American sweat lodge and you, you experience something beyond yourself. So we all have these glimpses. And the problem is that our brains were not meant to capture and hold on to those. And they don't have a lot of ability to focus or extend those experiences. They tend to be very fleeting and transitory. And so we may go chasing the next one by seeking thrills in one place or another. But our brains have evolved over the course of billions of years to do one thing primarily, and that's keep us alive. And so they scan the horizon continually for the bad stuff. And so your eyes are open. There's all this data going in through your eyes. Nine million pieces of information a second go through your optic nerve into your occipital cortex. And you're interpreting all of it to see where the bad stuff is, where the threat is, because that's how our ancestors survived. They saw the tiger in the grass and they ran. So we have this focus called the brain's negativity bias of looking for the bad stuff. And that's what's ensured our survival for millions of years. And now that there are no tigers in the grass, that machinery keeps on hunting for the bad stuff. And we call it worry and stress. And there are no more tigers to worry about. And so we stress about, I mean, my daughter, who I love and adore, <laughs> but, you know, she's she's grown. She's a computer programmer, and she's just this remarkable human being. And one day she was staying with us, and she had a pimple, a pimple. And so she's saying, look, I got this pimple on my chin. I can't see the bloody pimple. I can't even see it. Her entire focus has narrowed to the pimple on her chin, and she's forgotten all about, you know, the birds singing and the beautiful sunrise outside and all the wonderful things about life. And our, that's just the way our brains work. So how do we counteract that brain's negativity bias? We know there's a there, there. We know this happiness is possible. But the essential task from, I mean, Buddha, Jesus, all Lao Tzu, all these great teachers, they try to help us find some way to do what Jesus called find the heaven, find the kingdom within. The Sufis talked about finding heaven and Islam. And the Buddha said, meditate. So they all had some way of trying to call us back to that state. What we now have that the Buddha didn't have is we have neuroscience. And I can park somebody inside this giant machine called an MRI, and I can take a brain scan of them, and I can say, do something, think this thought, and you'll see the stress system light up. Then I'll say, try this, and I'll try that, and does it turn off? that stress response. Mm. So now I and a bunch of other neuroscientists have been trying for a long, for the last 20 years to find those things, filter all these ancient practices through science and come up with a list of things that really seriously work. And we're able to get people to these elevated states quickly, keep them there, spark neural plasticity and see them change. That's a, a really long answer, but it's where we are right now with science available to guide us toward happiness. That's incredible. And so we talk a lot here at Sakara. Our mission is to help people build their toolkit in order to really sit in the driver's seat of their health and feel really good. And for us, food was really the catalyst. And so what's in your toolkit? You know, when we started, you said you're meditating several hours a day. So it sounds like meditation is definitely in your toolkit. Why? And then what else? Yeah, and I do meditate for a couple of hours every day just because it's so pleasurable. In my book, Bliss Brain, I explain about the neurochemicals you get when you do an effective meditation. Like, for example, one of those is called anandamide. 
otherwise known as the bliss molecule, and it docks with the same receptor sites in your brain as THC, the active molecule in marijuana. You also have an explosion of serotonin. Serotonin has the same receptor nature as psilocybin, magic mushrooms. So in the brains of meditators, dopamine rises over 65%. So we're having all these floods of anandamide, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, and you feel wonderful. And so I just am so lost in pleasure. It's a little hard every day to come down from the mountaintop and actually you know, be a productive human being. <laughs> You're getting high on your own brain chemicals every day. I, 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 you're totally stoned. I mean, you do this stuff, you're you're just completely high. You're totally stoned. It does take a little bit of work to get down to, you know, the everyday level and go have your team meeting. So I do manage it, but it is a bit of a challenge. So meditation is one of them. And so you want to have spiritual, physical, and emotional tools. Meditation doesn't have to be an hour. I mean, research shows that eight minutes, 12 minutes is enough. But I recommend you not just go for the minimum dose because 20 minutes is is just definitely going to move the needle more quickly than 10 minutes. The second thing I think is essential is that even though you meditate every morning, stuff's going to happen because you'll get to that team meeting and you'll discover that your server's been hacked or a client's unhappy or your teenage kid has a crisis. So you're going to be than having to process negative emotional inputs. And so that's where I have people use acupressure. And acupressure is just pressure on acupuncture points by tapping on them while you think about negative things. In those MRI studies, it shows that the emotional stress part of the brain just shuts off when you tap. So that's what you do for a minute or two whenever you're stressed throughout the day. And then preferably meditate again for a little while before you go to sleep at night. What does your meditation look like when you're saying that you're meditating for 20 minutes? What are you doing? What I'm not doing is I'm not trying to stop my thoughts uh-huh. because it's hard to stop your thoughts. So if you filter all the ancient practices through that lens of neuroscience, you find some are super effective. Others are not very effective. Trying to stop your thoughts is hard. But what's effective is coherence, and you can get your brain and your heart into coherence simply with a slow breathing rhythm. So you do slow breathing. And I have five practices I add one on top of the other. And together, I call those eco-meditation. And there have now been many studies of eco-meditation. It's on hundreds of websites. And it's really been adopted by, at this point, millions of people because it's super easy. So I meditate using that slow breathing, heart coherence, brain coherence, relaxation to trigger the parasympathetic nervous system. So you go into this deep rest and digest, relaxed state. And so there are several science-based techniques you want to use rather than just closing your eyes and trying to still your mind, which usually doesn't work. And then when you're tapping, are there certain points that you tap? Yeah, there are 13 meridian endpoints that are effective for tapping. So we do a little ritual. We start at the top, top is the top of your head. You work your way down. And paradoxically, what you do when you're tapping is you think the worst. There's no positive thinking in EFT tapping. Tapping is all about catastrophizing, ruminating. You just basically focus on the worst. When we're working with veterans, for example, we've now, through our nonprofit called the Veteran Stress Solution, we've offered free tapping sessions to over 22,000 veterans. And so we have them think about 
the bomb blast and about losing their friend in combat and about dead civilians. We're having that actually focus on all this. And so again, that lights up the emotional part of the brain, the stress part of the brain. When they tap, it just deactivates. And when we check in with them again, six months or a year later, it stays deactivated. So that's what you do as that instant stress solution whenever you are triggered during the day. But that's just two minutes worth of stress reduction. Okay, so we have the tapping, the acupressure, and meditation. Is that kind of like your go-to toolkit? And then all the things that you guys focus on, like I eat super clean and healthy. I don't usually compromise about that. I, occasionally, I'll you know be someplace and have a slice of chocolate cake. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we call that the so, joy you know, factor. And after a while, also unhealthy food loses appeal to you. You look at the stuff, and you don't like feel drawn to it. You feel really drawn to things. Your body craves stuff that's good for it. And once you've rewired yourself, you find yourself literally craving broccoli. Like I have a dietitian friend, and she jokes, "No one ever craves broccoli except Dawson." we do too over here indeed we always say the more you eat this way the more you want to eat that way yeah it's actually true from you know a scientific perspective too because you're transforming you know which bacteria live in your gut which transform your taste buds etc you look at sugar it doesn't look like food you know you look at a pastry it doesn't look like food to you it looks kind of like cardboard so your body doesn't like see this food anymore after a while So talk to me about epigenetics and the, and the brain, your book, The Genie and Your Genes, this idea of how you can transform your biology with your thoughts. Can you gonna give us the, the 101 on what that means and what it is and the implications? This is remarkable research. The earlier studies were about how genes change in response to environmental factors. And the sort of big, huge flagship study done in 1999 was feeding mother rats a modified diet, and it radically changed the gene expression in their offspring. So that was the initial focus of epigenetic research, was on stuff we can do exogenously out there that turns genes on and off. But the whole idea that we could turn genes on and off was really a a big one, because we used to think that the genome was fixed and that the way you were was the way you were. So we now know that about 85% of the genome is dynamic and it's responding to cues from the environment. And so we shift those cues. And the biggest cue is stress because the whole body is shifted by stress. So there have been several studies of tapping. For example, I did one massive 10-year landmark study with veterans, mostly recruited through the Veterans Administration. And we showed that as they did 10 one-hour sessions, their genes that fight inflammation literally dialed way up. So suddenly they went from being poor at fighting inflammation to those genes being just at peak expression, their genes to do with immunity dialed way up. Now their immunity had risen way up. Another study looked at things like heart rate and doing tapping for a week solid with eco-meditation in the morning dropped people's heart rate an average of 8%. So their heart rate went down, their blood pressure went down, also 8%. Their cortisol, the main stress hormone, went down 37% in a week. 
they're much less stressed, and now that's showing up in their hormones. And when all that stress biochemistry dials down, a whole bunch of cell repair biochemistry dials up. So we also measured their levels of immunoglobulins, which are these immune markers that protect your body against viruses and bacteria. And those went up 113%, more than double in a week. So by shifting our mood, shifting our emotions, we can have these massive effects on our bodies. And that's the science of epigenetics. It's incredible and so inspiring because I very much respect allopathic medicine and God forbid I break the leg, like that's who I'm going to call. But I think that what we have to unlearn is that we need to give our power away to an expert or our health away to an expert. And so you must have seen so many lives transformed through this work for people. Because I think what you're doing is bridging the gap between the believers and the non-believers. And I think science, even though you know I wish this weren't necessarily the case all the time, I think science... And even the dogma of science really does help people believe things that they might not have believed before, that they are the types that have to see before they'll believe. Yeah, and you see that focus on what I called exogenous factors all over our society. And so allopathic medicine is one example, and people have an illness or a complaint or a condition, and they immediately go to the doctor. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to the doctor, get yourself checked out, get a diagnosis, see what's going on. And medicine was fantastically effective. You know, look at 1850. I mean, the huge advances made there in all kinds of fields of medicine. I mean, we nailed infectious disease, polio, typhoid, cholera. You know, between 1910 and 1930, it was rampant before 1910. It was gone by 1930. All of these diseases. So for infectious disease, for trauma, there's nothing like modern medicine. Where it does not do well is things like lifestyle diseases and autoimmune diseases. And they can't be controlled by a drug. But people look, again, for the drug, the surgery, the exogenous answer there. And the answers are endogenous. In one study of tapping, people are just tapping for fibromyalgia. Now, you go on the Mayo Clinic website and look up fibromyalgia, the first sentence is, fibromyalgia is an incurable disease. I mean, what a way to start off the conversation. You've got it, it's never going away. But in one randomized controlled trial of acupressure tapping for, for fibromyalgia, a third of the people got completely well, a third got partially well, and a third didn't respond. But two-thirds got well fully or partially. Psoriasis, the same thing. We also look exogenously to the outside world, for example, in nutrition and in supplements. I walked into the home of one friend and opened his kitchen drawer to get a glass of water, and the entire kitchen cabinet, this massive cabinet, from the bottom to the top, is packed with supplements. So again, that's the search for an exogenous something out there. Doesn't mean you don't need supplements. You do need supplements. I take you know, a bunch of things myself, but you don't want to be placing all your emphasis there. So focus on what you can do endogenously. What can I do to improve my mood? When I meditate, when I tap, when I fill my heart with loving kindness, all kinds of biological things shift in my body. Put these all together, get good allopathic medicine, get good nutrition, get good internal 
effects from meditation, from tapping, from all of these other wonderful kinds of methods we have, and you have the best of all possible worlds, and you feel just a whole lot better, and this translates into much greater longevity as well. What keeps you motivated to do these practices every day? <laughs> you know, I, I well, think for some people, it feels like it can be just kind of hard to start. And so it's easier if I just go to a doctor and they hand me a pill, right? Where they say, oh, there's nothing you can do. This is incurable. You know, like being in that place sometimes just feels easier and it's hard to do the work of making the time to meditate or making the right choices and really sitting in that driver's seat of your health. So what keeps you motivated? Well, two really pragmatic reasons are pleasure and productivity. That 65% rise in dopamine in your brain, that is incredibly addictive. There's one woman who walked into one of my live workshops for COVID, and she said, you know, I know you're using eco-meditation. I've been listening to Joe Dispenza and Tony Robbins and Marion Williamson, and I've been inspired. So I decided I, I was going to do your eco-meditation tracks for 30 days without a break, 30 days commitment, no, no exceptions, 30 days. I said, that's, that's commitment. That's great. And that's motivation. And what day are you on now? And she said, oh, I am on day 149. So when you're feeling that pleasure, that serotonin, that dopamine, that anandamide, when you're feeling in this state of floaty bliss every morning, even for 20 or 30 minutes, you don't stop. And so people do eco-meditation. They hit those bliss states fairly quickly. They then keep on doing this. So pleasure is one. I've also begun doing some research now into productivity. What happens when you go to the office? What happens when you're with your family and you're doing life's general chores and also when you're at work? And we're finding, as we measure this empirically, that in a month, people's productivity goes up 20%. That means you're getting done in four days what used to take you five. So A, you're in bliss. B, you're getting an extra day each week in your time to play or work, whatever you want to do with it. Those are two reasons to meditate and it'll motivate you. Is there a transition phase, though, at Saqqara when people first come to us? The first few days, maybe they're feeling a little uncomfortable or a little unsatisfied because they're used to eating bread, meat, cheese, coffee, and alcohol as their five major food groups and those microbes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's what people live on. And those microbes that are used to eating bread at every single meal start sending you signals to the brain. Hey, you haven't fed me yet. I'm still hungry. Keep eating. And you feel uncomfortable. But then the more you eat this way, the more your body starts to want to eat this way. And you start to feel pleasure and you start to feel energized and more productive. And really, I mean, with our clients, we see after four weeks of eating this way, that close to those 30 days, I mean, that's when people are really like, oh, wow, how could I ever go back? Yeah. And so is there a transition phase? And where is that kind of point where you're like, oh, yes, I'm feeling it. I'm addicted. I can never go back. 
I had a, a remarkable experience in between 2005 and 2007. This is going back a long time. But I was doing a study with healthcare workers. And what the study looked like was that there were one-day workshops I was teaching on tapping. And they were at medical conferences and psychology conferences. So I would usually have a one-day workshop after the conference. And there'd be maybe 15, 25, 30 people there in the room. And they were healthcare workers. So they were nurses. They were chiropractors. They were alternative medicine practitioners and so on. And so we would go through a whole bunch of routines with them, show them how to tap, explain the science, have them practice the method. Then the acid test was in the last part of the day. And Whitney, we did a cravings module. So we'd arranged beforehand with the hotel to bring in giant trays with all of the above, all those food groups on them. And they set them down in the middle of the room. Now, the energy in the room was so high because they couldn't eat them yet. They were allowed to eat them after the, after the workshop ended. But right now, there's this cake and there's this bread and there's this pasta and there's this wine, there's this candy that's right there in front of me. We have to measure their level of cravings. So what's your level of craving? Zero to 10, how big is your craving? And often it was 10 out of 10. It just went off the charts. And they're, again, they're unable to control them. We then had them tap. We had actually often had them pick up the thing or, or get really close to the thing and then apply the acupressure. And so initially, their emotional brain is highly lit up. Now, why is your emotional brain lit up when you're looking at bread? It's because you're projecting emotion into the bread. It's not just bread. It's not just wheat and grain. It is something else. There's an emotion there. It could be an aversive emotion. It could be an addiction. It could be a craving, but there's a high level of emotion. We don't know what emotion it is, but we can see that this emotional midbrain is highly lit up. We then did the tapping routine with them, and then we measured their level of craving a second time. Zero through 10, what's your number now? I was sending off these batches of data to the University of Arizona to run the numbers for me. And I remember the day I got back my first email from them with an Excel spreadsheet showing the results. Cravings on that spreadsheet went down in that 30 minutes of acupressure, cravings went down 83%. Wow. wow. And what happened in practice was that at the end of each day, we'd wrap up the workshop, people would give each other hugs, we'd all be chatting, they'd all walk out, and the food was just sitting there forgotten. I mean, nobody even bothered with it. So it very rapidly removes the emotion behind it. And when you reduce the craving, then you are able to break that habit of indulging in it over and over and over again. Do that a few times, and usually the craving starts to diminish in intensity, and then eventually it disappears. This reminds me of Janine Roth's work. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with her work, but like Women, Food, and yeah. God. And I love the title because you don't really necessarily understand why it's called that until... You understand what's the motivation, how do we keep going, how do you go from, you know, never wanting to eat well and having sugar cravings all the time to only wanting broccoli or whatever it is. That's the spiritual aspect. Those are the moments where you choose God and you choose something bigger than yourself. And in Sakara terms, we talk about it as investing in long-term joy. I mean, Dawson, you're talking about how you can basically have dopamine on tap versus <laughs> having to go eat a chocolate croissant, you know, to get that. And we constantly choose these short-term investments, which is, I think, 
what it is to be human. But in those moments where you can choose the long-term investment, where you can say like, exactly what you said, Dawson, like, I don't need these external things to give me joy. I can generate my own, that that is choosing God or whatever it is that you believe in spirit, et cetera. That is like the spiritual kind of attachment to, to joy. Yeah. And so long-term research shows that people who use this method, usually it's in a context of a program and they vary between two weeks and three months. So there are various EFT programs for food cravings. But what we do is we measure their weight. And usually between day one and the end of the six weeks, they lose a little bit of weight, like average four pounds. Not terribly exciting. We track them then in six months and a year. In a year, they lose 22 pounds. They finish the program. They're not even in it anymore. And their weight month by month is dropping an average of two pounds. Now, again, two pounds weight loss a month isn't terribly exciting. But again, multiply that by 12, 24 pounds a year, and then two years, 48 pounds. And it's just amazing to do this this work. And that little choice you make now is going to multiply and become really obvious in your body in just a few months. So what is so cool about all these tapping studies, and I don't know how many of them there are now, they're probably, for weight loss alone, there are probably more than 10. And they all show that same pattern of long-term weight loss after you change your energy, change your thinking, change your cravings, and then everything else downstream improves. Especially when we think about, you know, weight as this way to pad yourself from the outside world to hide. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I love Louise Hay's work in, in this where, you know, understanding how our emotions manifest in the physical. And as someone who was always kind of struggling with fluctuating weight, I really do think it's so tied to how vulnerable and present you are to right now versus I remember having just so much anxiety about the future, so much stress about the future. And it was just so much easier to hide behind a layer than it was to really, as Janine Roth would say, like choose God, choose what might feel like the harder path at first, but long-term is the dopamine on tap. Absolutely. And so you make those choices over and over and over again, and they're very small choices initially, but then you look at the long-term effects and they're dramatic. And one of the sets of studies that's really interesting is the optimism studies. And there are several large-scale long-term ones, like tens of thousands of people lasting a decade or more, some of them 30-year studies. And what they show is that people who have some degree of emotional mastery, who aren't giving in to pessimism and doubt and fear and and resentment and all the negative emotions, who are staying in touch with all the positive emotions, we can just call that optimism for short, but their lifespan is average 10 years longer. So that choice you make today and tomorrow and the next day, again, tiny choices to extricate yourself from negative thinking and to tap, to release, to meditate, to shift your thinking, to focus on God, whatever it is that moves the needle for you, that little choice is a little tiny choice today. But your body will love and thank you for it when you're 70, 80, and 90 years old. Again, 10 extra years of life, and those years tend to be healthier years as well. So it really is worthwhile long-term to use these practices. And what about, I've heard you talk about the pleasurable aspect of this work, kind of efficiency, energy. 
Have you measured or has anyone else measured how much more people feel that resonance throughout their day after doing this work? And I guess I would tie that to some level of feeling in touch with their intuition or that gut feeling. Um, is that something you've personally found or have found in the literature? Danielle, there are two things you have to do as an adult. So when you're a child, you have no control. Things are happening all around you. Your parents are pulling you from pillar to post. You have no idea what the trajectory of your life is like. And often upsetting things happen. Upsetting things happen to everybody. Your, your pet rabbit dies. Your grandma dies. You move and lose your best friend. And there's just this stuff. And some people are traumatized and have horrendous childhoods. And even like I have a friend, Rick Hansen, who wrote a book, Buddha's Brain. And he says that he wound up in his 20s as a grad student, just really anxious all the time, even though he'd had a great childhood. So we all, all have these things. And so how do we shift that? How do we shift that daily? So the first thing you have to do, and now you're not a child, you're 25 years old, you're 45 years old, you have power. And the first thing you have to take care of is that childhood trauma. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, shows that people who do not heal their trauma, their childhood trauma, have higher rates of cancer, heart disease, hepatitis, diabetes, smoking, blah, blah, blah. All those conditions are greater in those who have unhealed childhood trauma. So the first job we have as adults is to proactively heal our childhood trauma. And I have a program called the Personal Peace Procedure that guides people through going and clearing all of that stuff from their, their childhood. We also have live practitioners. We have hundreds of people who are trained in this to help people clear all of that childhood trauma. But the next job beyond that is ascending the hierarchy of needs. So Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs has survival at the bottom. That's trauma, survival fear. And you clear that and you're no longer just living your life at that survival level in stress and fight or flight. Now you start to move up the hierarchy of needs. You then hit the top, self-actualization. And then Maslow said, beyond that, there's another whole level called self-transcendence. And that is spirituality. That is plugging into something higher than yourself. And so you do that every day. And that's what meditation does. You let go of what I call in my book, Mind to Matter, I call this local mind, local reality. And you plug into non-local reality. And that's where there's all that joy and all that gratitude and all that bliss and all that well-being, all that compassion. You then are channeling that into your daily life. And so that's the second huge potential that we have as human beings to live lives where, as I began by saying with the very first question, we live in a universe of love, we live in a universe of joy, we have all of this beauty and grace just pouring down on our heads at any moment. The variable is, are we awake to it? Or are we just eyes down, focused on local mind, buried in our stress and fight or flight? Or have we clarified that enough be able to move into non-local reality and enjoy those benefits. So that's the second piece of growth. First piece is dealing with trauma. Second piece is plugging into non-local reality, who we are as spirit, as joy, as consciousness, and then living that at the level of our local lives. It's beautiful. And motivating in and of itself. I mean, when you said that most people in childhood have that moment, where they realize the universe is love. It just made me wonder, like, you know, when did I? But I have this memory of having 
this picture of basically like an upside down triangle above my head. And what was funneling into it was exactly what you just said. It was like this universal love and grace and angels. And it just felt like whatever, whatever I kind of could have imagined heaven would be, or, you know, another realm that that was it. And I remember having kind of that visual as a child and it stuck with me all the way through, like I carry it through my meditations, but it is so interesting to hear you say that. Cause I don't think I ever cognized it in that way that there was a moment and I don't necessarily remember the moment, but I remember that it happened as a child. Brittany, how about you? I don't know if I can think about a certain moment. I'm trying to think back. I'm trying to remember back. I feel like I'll need to go into a meditative state or something and let that moment kind of come to surface because I, I've, I've never heard that before that we all have that moment. So I, it's not something that I've thought about. But it can be an inspiring moment too. Often it's in nature when we're just awed by what we see. I was going to ask, you know, we're mothers of young children. Like, are there tapping or kind of in an environment to create for our children so that they kind of have that feeling often and those reminders often? Do you have recommendations? Yeah. So tapping is uh, in a lot of schools now as a way of stress reduction and it's powerful. Meditation is in a lot of schools too. So these tools are making their way in there. And if you have a family and you're able to release emotional tension, both when kids are small and also when they're growing through puberty and teenagerhood, which is full of emotional challenges. If they have stress reduction techniques, they then are able to navigate those much more effectively. And the other interesting piece of research is that depression is a real problem for teenagers. A lot of teens are depressed, but brain research shows that teens who have a strong spiritual inclination are much less likely to be depressed. And teens who are depressed are much less likely to be spiritual. And one well-known best-selling author says that depression and spirituality in teens are two sides of the same coin. That if teens are able to be in contact with something larger than themselves, again, they're much less likely to be depressed. So children who are, are raised in an emotional environment where it's calm, it's peaceful, it's loving, there's lightness, there's laughter, there's a sense of flow, they're absorbing that. They're absorbing it not just mentally and visually. I mean, modeling is important, what they see. They're getting it energetically and vibrationally. Like, I remember one time when my youngest son was five years old, and um my daughter and he and I were in the car. He was strapped in his car seat. We were going to the store to buy dinner. And in the store, they gave him a balloon. And it was Halloween. So the balloon was black and orange. And it was a helium balloon. And so they gave this little five-year-old boy his helium balloon. But they tied it onto his wrist because, you know, five-year-old boy is going to lose the balloon. So they tied it onto his wrist. And so we uh, got it back in the car, strapped him in his car seat. My daughter was about 13 years old at the time. And we drove home. But unbeknownst to me, on the way home, he was picking at this thread and he untied the string. So when we opened the car door, a breeze blew through the car blew the balloon out of the car and onto the lawn and a sharp blade of grass punctured the balloon and it popped. Oh. 
So here, this balloon, which he had christened Mr. Halloween Balloon, was dead. And he just watched the death of Mr. Halloween Balloon, and his face contorted in agony, and he began to wail. He was crying his little heart out. And so I had this really weird moment then as a parent. I thought, now, this is a teaching moment. I could tell him about the importance of keeping the, the string tied, or I could just hold him. I made a decision to do the latter. I just picked him up in my arms. I held him. He threw his arms around my neck, buried his head in my neck, and just, he just wailed for a second. And then it was gone, over. He looked up, saw my daughter carrying bags into the house, jumped out of my arms, and ran in with her. The incident was totally over. So that's feeling your emotions and processing them. But it was also regulation with by me. It was not me talking to him, talking at him as a superior adult. It was just me being there as another human being and holding him, letting him cry. When my wife has a problem, she doesn't want my brilliant coaching and advice. She wants me to hear her and maybe hold her. And so I've discovered over a long period of marriage that all of my smarts and all my knowledge is pretty much going to get in my way when it comes to relating with my wife. But if I just listen to her and really tune into her, if I slow down to her pace, I'm a super fast moving human being. She speaks slowly and she's very deliberate and kind of ballet-like in her movements. And so if I move into her pace, far more ability to connect. So connect, have presence with other people in your life. So you want to connect at that level with your kids viscerally. And that creates, again, this feeling of energetic safety. Also, your parasympathetic nervous system is regulating theirs. So when you're in the room with uh, a person who is regulated, it regulates you. I'm having 20 people over at my house in a few weeks' time. We'll just sit together for two days and just sitting and breathing together for two days, regulate each other. So it's really powerful to do this. And when you're doing this with kids, they then learn how to do that. They then do it with other kids, with their families, and it perpetuates through the next generation. It also puts a stop to all the ways of raising children that have been so dysfunctional in our society up to this point. So physical, physiological regulation, emotional regulation, energetic regulation is an incredible gift to your children. And this morning I was getting ready for work and everything. I was shooting some stuff this morning and I was doing my hair in the bathroom and my son was getting ready to go. He's two and a half. He was getting ready to go to his little class and he came in and he asked me to play with him. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm getting ready for work and you need to go to class. And he started crying, real tears, you know, crying so hard and hugging my leg and saying no, and he wanted me to play with him. And so I remembered, I switched into this mode and I got down, I crouched down onto his level <laughs> and I told him, yeah, I hear you. I understand that you don't want to go to class right now, that you want to play with mommy. You know, these are the things we need to be doing and explained to him a little bit about why. And so I ended up saying, okay, let's play for five minutes. And, you know, this is your need. I hear you. And then we need to go to class and go to work. But getting down on his level, holding him a little bit, making sure he felt heard, that he wasn't just needing to say it louder to me to be heard. But having that moment of connection, I think, really changed 
the way that he reacted and also the way that I reacted, allowing him to feel heard. Yeah, and you're training him to be a certain way as well, which will continue throughout his life. And, you know, hearing about you talk about the difference in teenagers and young adults when they feel connected to something greater than themselves, it brings me back to when Danielle and I, before we started Sakara, you know, I was maybe 23 years old. We were living together in Soho in this, you know, tiny apartment. And I was just feeling so much anxiety around what is my future? I didn't feel like I had a path or had control. I felt like I was supposed to have it all figured out by then. I was an adult, quote unquote adult, and just feeling so much anxiety. And we started to create these meals for ourselves, for other people, and started to hear about the impact these meals had on other people's lives. And I realized that being in service to other people allowed me to take some of that attention of spotting the imperfections and that pimple on my face and put that energy towards how can I help others in their lives? And that gave me this feeling of being connected to a bigger purpose and being on this mission. And it was a huge piece, I think, the combination between changing my gut microbiome, my biology, by eating these foods and this feeling in service and having a purpose completely got rid of my anxiety and those fears that I felt. So I'm with you. I think if we can find ways to feel that connection, and I, I think that just getting started, going out there, doing things for other people is a great way to start to feel that connection. Absolutely. And one of the meditation forms that has been shown to most quickly trigger positive change in the brain is compassion. We let go of our obsession with ourselves. What you see in Tibetan monks, Franciscan nuns who are doing this is that that part of the brain that builds a sense of self and thinks about self quiets way down. And the part of the brain that has to do with compassion lights way up and they become dramatically happier. So that's one of the forms of meditation that most rapidly remodels the brain. And so you have a different brain as a result, Whitney, of making that shift. Wow, it's powerful. Well, I would love for you to, can you take us through a quick tapping exercise? Is that possible for you to walk our listeners through it with you? We can do a very brief one. And then for an extended one, go to my website and you can do a longer one. But just very briefly, if you think about something that bothered you from the last two weeks, so some event that happened, maybe you were in a long line at the Department of Motor Vehicles, maybe somebody said something that was hurtful to you, perhaps on an email that really hurt or bothered you. So think about something that happened that's recent in the last couple of weeks. So Danielle, you think about one too. Something triggering. And I'll give it a number zero through 10, with 10 being extreme emotion and zero being no emotion. So think about your number. And then I want you to write down your number. You can use a device if you don't have a pen and paper handy, but just write down your number as you think about that triggering emotional event. 
Is it a seven? Is it a five? Just give it a numerical score. And if this was a movie, what would the movie name be? So the movie name might be The Long Line or The Snarky Email. So what was the name of the event? The name of the event, and I'm doing the exercise too. So I've got the, the name of a guy I'd work with who wasn't very cooperative, and I've got my number, which is a seven. So I haven't worked on this one yet. It just happened a few days ago. So as you're listening to us now, make sure you have your name of your event and your number written down, because often those scores drop so quickly, they're pretty baffling to the mind. So it's worthwhile writing them down to remember, oh, I felt that way just a few minutes ago. Now, keep your eyes open and just apply pressure in the form of tapping to this part of the side of your hand. Just to clarify, the side of your hand just below the pinky finger. So you tap lightly on the side of your hand. You stay focused on the event. And also notice your breath. Feel your breath. Think about the, the event, the name of the event, and tap. And just notice you're safe. Notice there's nothing bad in your environment right now. There are no tigers around. Keep your eyes open. No tigers. You're breathing. You're safe. And this thing really happened. I mean, this thing that happened, it was, it was a bad event. It's emotionally triggering. It's real. And... We're breathing, we're safe. Tap on the top of your head. One of your meridians, this is an important one, your governing meridian. Notice your breathing. Notice you're safe. Feel the breath flowing in and out of your body. Now tap where your eyebrow meets the bridge of your nose. This is a different meridian. And again, focus on the name of the event. Notice your breath. Tap on the side of your eye. Feel the breath flowing in and out of your body. There's no threat to your survival right now. Tap under your eye. Again, eyes open. Really focus on what was the most triggering part of that triggering event. What was the most emotional part of the emotional event? And while you're focusing on that, notice your breath. Notice you're safe. Tap under your nose. Again, the name of the event, the most emotional part of the event, the worst part of the event. Tap under your lower lip. Again, eyes open, noticing your breath. Notice if your shoulders are tense, your neck is tense, relax them. Notice you're breathing again. Then tap where your collarbone meets your breastbone. 
And if you can tap there fairly firmly, do. Don't tap so it's uncomfortable, but make sure you really feel that point. That point is about a half inch below the skin, so it's a little harder to stimulate. Thinking about the event, noticing your state, noticing your breath. Then tap onto your arm about four inches below your armpit. It's your spleen meridian. Notice your breathing. Think about the event. Notice if you're thinking about the event is changing. And then end up by tapping on the side of your hand one last time. In the end, just look around the room. Notice there are really no tigers there, not even a lion, not even a poisonous snake. <laughs> no enemy with a spear running at you right this very moment. Not even poison oak or poison ivy. <laughs> absolutely nothing here that's any kind of a threat to you. Feel your breath. <laughs> and stop tapping and relax. Okay, now just think about the event and notice how you're feeling differently about the event now and also what's your number? Like what's your, your number this very moment? And write down your new number. So Whitney, what was your first and second number? My first number was seven and then my second number was four. Okay. So it dropped Good. almost 50%, I'd say. And you can tap again later on and you'll likely see it drop some more. And also, if you have a lot of similar events, then you will need to do other things too, because often we're annoyed by a certain thing because it's a lot like a certain other thing that happened to us earlier, especially in childhood. So, and I think for me, mine was a lot about just the fear that I had built up of the unknown and fear around something that hadn't even happened yet and there was no outcome but just like that worry and anxiety of, you know, something that I had made up in my mind was where those emotions were coming from most around the situation. Yeah. And our minds can invent threats where there are none. And that's, again, how our ancestors stayed safe. So it makes sense our minds work that way. Just that we, in the absence of threats, have to rewrite the software inside our heads. That was great. I love this doing this exercise, and I think all of our listeners will really enjoy it as well. Daniel, how about you? Mine started at an eight and went to a four. But as we're talking, I'm feeling like the remaining four is more because I know it's going to happen again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure it's about the prior moment, but more the feelings like that I feel like it's likely going to repeat itself. Yep. And people, when one thing goes down, the way our emotions work is we go find the next thing to worry about. Because if you quit worrying about one thing, it's like your brain says, okay, that's no longer a threat. What's the next threat? Let's go find something else to worry about. And if one thing after another, our brains are going to cycle through our available worries. Yeah, exactly. We'll, yeah. we'll all work on that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. There's plenty of things to think about, brain, other than worrying about the future, the unknown, as it said. Dawson, you're incredible. Thank you so much. We're so this grateful. Amazing. We got to chat with you, and thank you for the beautiful work you put out into the world. 
it's joy. It's wonderful to do it. And uh, it's just so thrilling to see people just shifting and healing and realizing after a while, like the veterans who come to us, often they're, they've been plagued by nightmares and flashbacks and intrusive thoughts for years. And then like one of them said after his first session, he, he emailed his, his therapist and said, I did the first tapping session with you last week. And after that session, I slept through the night for the very first time since I got back from Vietnam. Wow. So it just is amazing to hear these stories and see people shift addictions and trauma. So we're now in this golden age of human flourishing where we have all these tools like this to help us uh, should we know more than we had known before. Science is helping us understand more about well-being than we've ever known before. And it's such an exciting time to be alive. So I'm thrilled to be here. And this is hardly work at all. (laughs) (laughs) Living joyfully. Living joyfully. Wonderful. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Saqqara. And so we wanted to share a bit about our Saqqara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experience through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition, which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Saqqara Signature Nutrition Program, head to saqqara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation. So use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body. And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world.